That's really what engineering is. It's finding a problem and making it better. It's about how deep into sharing your ideas with other people and improving exponentially the, the solution to the problem. Welcome to The Wagon Live. This week, we have Liv Wild speaking to us, the Director of Technology Platforms for Hotels.com, which is part of Expedia Group. Currently, Liv leads a multidisciplinary team of engineers who focus on the operational excellence of the Hotels.com technology platform. She's previously held senior leadership roles within the BBC, GDS, Skimlinks, as well as the European Head of People and Professional Services at international IT services and software consultancy, ThoughtWorks. Liv is now focusing on the innovation of user-friendly travel platforms and shares her secrets on this podcast. Hotels.com is part of Expedia Group and is the leading provider of hotel accommodation worldwide. So keep listening to what's in store for the industry. I'm Liv Wild. I work as a tech director for Platform in HCOM, which is um, part of the Expedia Group. I run a team of around nearly 100 engineers who are multidisciplinary building the platform that all of the Hotels.com apps uh, rest on. Um, we make sure that we've got AWS up, it's running effectively, that any incidents that happen within it, we, we deal with them. And then we're moving to an SRE model. So we're really hoping that we become a bit more proactive in the way that we deal with incidents when they occur. Um, I started my career in tech in a very long time ago, 1996. Started as a C++ developer that's what you did in those days. I'm quite passionate that all technical problems could be solved with C++. However, <laughs> over the last nearly 20, over 20 years, um, I've realised that there are lots of different ways of solving problems. Um, so I worked at first for British Telecom, where I worked um, in their professional services bit of the business, which is called BT Global Services now. So I worked for many, many clients. I was able to work in software engineering and also in operations, which I think is where the germ of the idea of SRE started to become true in my head because I was de delivering software. I was just throwing over the wall to operations. But then when I became an operations engineer, I realized that that's super unfair. So um, I then moved to ThoughtWorks, where I started um, managing teams of engineers on client sites developing bespoke software for clients um, and then I was very lucky I traveled to work in China to work in the US so I had a lot of experience of working with amazing people I worked on my first project with Alistair Coburn and um, Martin Fowler who were signatories to the Agile Manifesto so that was super that was properly inspiring um, and then so then I worked all over the world and then I came back to London and became the head of professional services for the European business which then expanded to be called the head of people. So that's really understanding engineers and how you can match their personal career objectives with the client objectives that you have in front of you, which isn't always a perfect match. After ThoughtWorks, I worked for a couple of startups, one in Manhattan and one in London. So Skimlinks was set up by a female founder. It was always an ambition of mine to work for a female founder. So there I was head of HR, weirdly. So you don't want to employ me because of my HR um, skills, I don't think. So luckily I had a very good lawyer to help me. Um, but again, I was trying to think about how do you inspire engineers to kind of fulfill their potential within a high pressurized delivery environment like a startup. And from there I went, changed scale completely, thought about the same problem. How do you describe what engineers do? How do you find them? How do you keep them? How do you inspire them? in the government digital service, 
where I was working across government with lots of different departments, thinking about a population of around about 10,000 people across the UK. Um, so that's a different, that's kind of a different scale. Uh, but that was fascinating and working with civil servants. It's one of the best, most challenging times <clears throat> in the civil service theory of how you manage your career is we will move you to where we need you. And it's sort of like, oh, you want me to be a software engineer now? And um, it means that there are lots of really bright, motivated people who are doing things, but, but coming from a really a different kind of a hinterland than if you're working with IT professionals, you're not necessarily only working with people from comp side backgrounds. And that was a really interesting kind of model because at ThoughtWorks, it's all computer science. But it was a really different way of thinking about how you can deliver software. Then I moved to the BBC where I helped set up the architecture practice with the chief architect. Um, and then I became the engineering manager for the media services team. And they're the team who convert any broadcast material from either TV or radio into content that's available digitally across all the apps that there are in the BBC. Um, so that's a reasonably interesting job to do um, with the multidisciplinary engineering team. And now I'm at Expedia and I'm um, managing a similar kind of a team, just in a different domain and at a much bigger scale because Agecom and the Expedia group is, there are more people booking travel than there are watching, even watching Strictly Come Dancing. Well, that, that is surprising. Um, so what about your time with the UK government? What kind of projects were you involved in, like specifically? So I work for the CEO of um, the Government Digital Service and um, John Manzoni, who was the head of the civil service. And he really wanted to understand how many digital data and technology professionals are there in government. It's not that easy to count them. Um, and it means different things in different departments. So my role effectively was to describe what is a software engineer and all of the career paths that are, in, that are designed to support software engineers. I would say it like that, but maybe content designers would see it differently. But anyway, um, all the other digital and data and technology careers paths, so we had to describe them. And then we had to go and find people in all of the different departments to work out how many there were. So that was the main objective. And then as part of that, we also needed to improve our recruitment process, improve our onboarding, and think about the kind of the people perspective of how do you lead a massive group of engineers across a huge organization with many, many challenges. Um, and what about your time at the BBC after that? How did you help them like, kind of reinvent their digital offering? I didn't really reinvent anything. Um, so I joined a team that was already pre-existing. They had done a lot of the work. Um, you could use the iPlayer before I got there. Media Services is the team that m makes sure that you can use the iPlayer or BBC Sounds or any of the apps. Um, my role really when I joined that team was to help us to understand how we could make sure that if broadcast, when broadcast stops being the main medium of distribution of material, how can we make sure that media services is as, as reliable as it could be um, without spending the kind of money that, that we would have to in order to be servicing that content in the same way that they do in the broadcast area. So in the broadcast area, there is lots of redundancy. That's how they guarantee that if you're watching Strictly Come Dancing or the World Cup, the way they guarantee it on BBC One is if anything goes wrong, they will simply change everything about BBC One and they'll flick everything over from one 
side to the other. In digital, we can't really do that because it would cost a lot. AWS will bankrupt us. Um, so we need to make sure that we are making sure that the, the systems and the site is self-healing. We're removing toil so that when issues do transpire, we know how to solve them. Um, and really, that was my job. So I suppose, in a way, I introduced SRE to the BBC because prior to that, there hadn't been an SRE approach. Does everybody know what SRE is? No. Okay, so SRE is, a, is the way, really, that Google describe how they ensure that Google is reliable and it's site reliability engineering. It's not really a job description, it's more a culture. So how do you ensure that your engineering teams in the operations side have the same view of your system or site or replace with NES um, that your development team have? And how do you ensure that your development team understand the challenges that are being faced by the operations team and then adjust their behavior or their code um, in order to make sure that everybody feels that they own the production system. And that is a challenge in large corporates because many, many large corporates have grown up with the idea that developers need to develop um, functionality and they need to do that as fast as possible and then operators will sort anything out. In a world where you don't have enough engineers to do or to create all the functionality that you have, you need to make sure that that relationship is much more efficient and effective. You're protecting revenue of the company, and you're also ensuring that your engineers are putting their talent, not to panicking and looking in Splunk, but you're creating automated approaches to solving problems so that your engineers can be doing much more interesting things with their imaginations. So it does sound to me like you did reinvent something there. <laughs> so... Um, from the BBC into the travel tech industry to Expedia, that is a big change. So do you want to tell us a bit more about that change? Well, I have a professional services background, so I don't think I'm driven by domain. I'm d driven by the problems and the people. So what problem do you want me to try to help you to solve? Is it exciting? Is it interesting? Is it at scale? And then of all the people you're gonna make me interview through nine interviews, <laughs> are the people that I'm meeting interesting, inspiring? Do they want to have a conversation about how we could solve that problem? Do they already have some ideas? Are they willing to share that and work together to kind of make that happen? And that's why I went for Expedia. It isn't that there's some questions coming up about which challenge of brands do you know about in the travel sector? But I'm definitely not a travel expert. I think what I really love is a good proper engineering problem where there's a challenge to be faced. And probably what, what I need over the top of that is a people problem. Because I think that's where I think that's where I specialise. So how can we change the culture or how can we make people feel that they can collaborate more effectively. And at Expedia Group, we're going through a huge change at the moment organisationally, and we've got these engineering challenges to build a platform across the whole group. And so that was a really interesting problem. So it wasn't, I didn't like TV anymore, although I don't like TV. Um, it, it was more that it was a bigger scale of problem, working with some really interesting people who are trying to do some really quite difficult things. Um, so I'm sure that all of us have heard about Hotels.com and the Expedia group. So how is the group structured really? And do you work more for one brand or the other? How, how does it really work? So we're all now employees of Expedia group. Expedia group until about four months ago 
operated very much as separate brands that were in competition with each other. So I think there's about 23 brands across Expedia Group, which includes Expedia.co.uk and those, but also <coughs> Hotels.com, um, HomeAway, which is now called Verbo, uh, What If, Trivago. There's loads of them. I don't, let me, I, I don't know all of them off by heart. Um, and we were operating as competitor businesses and we were competing for the same customers, same employees, doing things in the way that we thought would help us to achieve our own brand's aims. Over the course of this year, Mark Okerstrom, who's our CEO, has, has decided that actually he'd like to pivot the organisation towards being a much more one brand organisation to reduce the amount of duplication that that kind of competition entails, particularly in the tech sector, in the, te in the technical part of the business. And so um, we have anybody who was in a platform supporting one of these separate brands is now mainly in one central group, which is called, what's it called? Marketplace and platforms. And that means that we're in the process of transitioning. So I do do some work with people from other brands, but mostly my team are working at the moment just for HCOM. And over the next six to nine months, I think that they'll probably start to work for different brands as well. Okay, and what are you building at the moment? Is there something specific you're working on you'd like to share? Um, the main thing that the team is doing at the moment is migrating to AWS. So our, our, cl our cloud strategy is to migrate to AWS this year, um, which we have to do before November the 29th, which we're on track to do, which is marvellous. So the whole of this year has really been concentrating on how do you do that? How do you work with the, I think there's about 400 app development engineers across Expedia, uh, across HCOM who are building different apps. How do you help them to do that? How do you make sure that you're making, giving, offering them the same observability and monitoring that they had before? Um, and how do you bring it all together and move everybody in a way that they feel comfortable with? Okay, and I know you said you're not a travel expert, uh, but working for a travel marketplace, um, where do you see the future of the industry or any products that you, you might see being available in the future to the consumer? So I think that I am in the platform side of things. So I don't have any secret um, shortcuts to what pro the product team are thinking about. I do think that for Expedia, how we are going to compete in the future with our other competitors or challenger brands is through consolidating and working much more um, effectively together and reducing duplication so that we're reducing the amount of costs that it's taking to generate all the times that you book on through all of our different brands. So I think that for anybody in my team who's moving into the platform and marketplaces team, that's really exciting because there's loads of challenge to think about how can we really make this platform really effective for the, all of the brands. Are there any downsides or obstacles to being a marketplace and not owning 100% of all the content that is on your, on your platforms? I suppose this would apply for marketplaces in, in general, not just in the travel industry, but are there any challenges that come with that? I think that the, being a two-sided platform means that we have, in order to get, generate network effects, we have to get more people on both sides, suppliers and, uh, cons and, and consumers to work with us and I think that the way that we have been trying to think of our end consumers in HCOM has been very much right how are we going to support the system so that if you are in the process now of making a transaction everything will work for you and I think over time 
we're going to pivot away from that towards thinking about how can we how can we offer a customer experience that really matches the um, aspirations of our brand and that's slight that's a slightly different way of managing your customers and encouraging a long-term customer relationship so we're going to start to think about failed customer interactions over failed um, uh, transactions or bookings because you can lose a customer at any stage of the of a of a trip or a user journey and if we can understand how many times we're losing people at different points we can start to address that and really help the site to be much more in line with the aspirations that Mark Okerstrom as our CTO talks about and I don't think we're there yet and I think that that is the biggest challenge for Expedia Group and our brands and I'm really hopeful that focusing on failed customer interactions will help us to really think about how we can improve for our end customers. Um, thank you. And you were mentioning also before this question about the challenger, the challenger brands. So are there any that have caught your eye? So in terms of the travel, travel industry? At the moment, I'm not really thinking about the travel industry. I'm thinking about all of the different places or websites that have the same kind of at scale challenges that I have in my team. So how do you support millions of customers doing quite complicated things between um, hotels, airlines, packages, individuals renting out their own rooms, which is how, who, who else is doing interesting things to be able to make sure that that works. And that, that's where I spend a lot of my time thinking about how to, how to support an at scale website. So I don't really have very many insights into the travel industry, but um, I'm trying to develop a better relationship with people who are doing the same sort of thing as me in different brands. Okay, and um, moving on to your day-to-day -day, um, life and your day-to-day -day work, um, do you work closely with your developers and what is your team like? Well, my team is awesome, so we'll just get that straight. Um, so there are different teams that are split into different, kind of different specialities that they have. So we have a a team that's building AWS, we have a team that's provisioning the data infrastructure, we have a team that's responding to incidents in the live environment, we have a team that's responding to incidents in the production tool train. Um, so we have lots of different teams who are doing, who have slightly different focuses with the aim of ensuring that our site is up and running and accessible for our um, developer community as well as our customers. So my team do a lot of consulting if you like with the app development teams to help to understand what are their challenges in whichever aspect that they are specialist in and we have a roadmap like any product team would um, of how we are going to solve those problems for our customers um, and when it comes to the speed of delivery um, which is best Scala driver or go none of those are going to work if your engineers don't know how to use it and if you're moving from one coding base to another coding base it's going to take a long time so i don't think that there is an answer where i could say it's this one or the other what you need is a team who understands what they're using in terms of the language so you need to be clear that you've given people the the knowledge to be able to develop in that tool and it's got to be right for the problem that you're trying to solve so when i've had an engineering team who were solving a very clear problem and they all know what they're doing it doesn't really matter if they're doing it in Java or Go or, I mean, Clojure was one that I was dealing with when I was at ThoughtWorks. 
it's the hap it's the kind of the happy team who have a problem to solve and we're solving that problem with the right tool yeah, I guess you've partially answered the next question with, with this question, but I know that you guys at Hotels.com is mainly Java. So what are your views on Ruby, if you have any? <laughs> well, like you see, share? this is the interesting thing. I mean, I'm just not a religious kind of a person when it comes to coding and engineering. I think that we should be much more clear about what problems we're aiming to solve rather than what language we're going to solve them in. And sometimes I know that the engineers who are saying to me it has to be Clojure or it has to be Ruby are doing that because they're trying to build their CV. But actually, I think speaking now from the great heights of being a director of technology, the things that are really impressive on a CV are not that you've done 47 different languages or that you're working currently in the coolest one. It's that you've really solved a problem for the business, that you've really like you've made an impact and you've changed their lives in some way. And sometimes that's going to be really dull and might be in some boring language that isn't brand new, but it's actually a much bigger impact if you can, if you can genuinely talk about the impact that you're making. And I, th I think sometimes in my career, these kind of religious wars that break out in front of me and people say, be the arbiter of what's the best code to choose. I'd much rather be the arbiter of what's, the, what's going to be the most impactful problem to solve. Um, and your coding structure, right? So can you tell us a bit more about, about that? Well, I think everybody should do codeclub.co.uk. It's awesome because you have to code with people who are between four, who can barely read, and, and my group consists of some 10-year-olds as well. And it's really interesting because I love working with graduate trainees because they always say, why? Well, four-year-olds say, why, more often. And it's really, really interesting to be able to communicate to a four-year-old you know, how, to co how, how do you code? It's not the same as talking to a 32-year-old. And it's really helped me to really think about why do I do the things that I do? Why do I say the things that I say? Why do I have these beliefs? Because if you're four, when, when one of the four-year-olds, Elif, who's in my group, is going to be my age, well, I don't think it's going to be an argument about Ruby or Clojure anymore. And it's, it's it's inspiring them to think about what are the problems that they really want to solve and a four-year-old's problems are they want to entertain themselves. Okay, so how do we help them to build games and show them, you know, the joy of what programming can give. And it's just been an amazing thing for, to do. It's a bit of a hassle trying to get to the school at three o'clock in the afternoon, but <laughs> it's one of the best afternoons of my week. So do you think everyone should code? I don't know the answer to that. There's a, there's a lot, isn't there, about digital literacy, and I don't know whether being able to code necessarily makes you more digitally literate. And I think there's a broader there's a broader curriculum that I think the BBC, for example, are quite involved in publicly. That one of their public service ethos means that they're quite involved in thinking about how can we help the British public become more digitally literate. And part of that was the um, I've totally forgotten its name. Well, they invented this little toy. You've definitely all heard of it, uh, which you can code and it lights up and it does things and it has accessories that move fans. So it's a bit like a Raspberry Pi. That's quite interesting, but I think that alone is not enough to help kids understand how to operate online, how to protect themselves. It doesn't help, never mind kids, anybody to understand that. But I think it can be a good starting point to ensure that more and more people are digitally lit literate. Because I think what I learned at the BBC and in government is that 
quite a lot of the time I make I meet people who are very digitally literate. They've all got the latest iPhone and iPads and projectors in the houses and all that kind of jazz. But I was very not aware of people who don't have that available to them. And um, I think just teaching those people to code wouldn't be enough. It's, it's, it has to be part of a more broader curriculum. And I think going into a school with Code Club, you, you can be giving the kind of fun coding stuff. But the, the rest of the curriculum is really important to back that up. Yeah, that does that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, that definitely. So moving on to more the entrepreneurial, your entrepreneurial industry knowledge side. Um, I know you've done some work with startups. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? And also, do you have some advice for non-technical co-founders as well as technical, technical co-founders and um, CTOs? Well, I've never worked for a technical founder. Uh, so I worked for Intent Media, um, which is a an application uh, that I now use as part of my work at Expedia. Um, they they kind of help support the advertising of Expedia Group, and I work for Skimlinks, who similarly um, are supporting publishers to make uh, revenue out of the content that they're publishing by making links to affiliates and that kind of thing, and making that whole process very easy. What was the question? Um, so if you have any advice um, for especially non-technical co-founders and you know, potential CTOs, but also um, technical co-founders, because obviously at um, Lee Wagon, some of us will go on to, to become technical um, co-founders. So would you have any advice for us? I think the best advice is that you need to know the limits of your own uh, skills. So you might have a brilliant, brilliant idea, but you will need to involve other people in making sure that the idea can germinate and grow. And if your idea is growing very successfully, you'll need lots of other people. And part of the challenges I think that I have worked with some founders to do is to really think about how can you almost let go of your baby while still keeping control of the vision of where it's going and let other people deliver it. And I think that's one of the hardest things that the entrepreneurs that I've worked with have had to do, to be really honest with themselves to say, okay, this thing I cannot do. And with law and finance, that's usually really easy for them to understand. <laughs> I cannot do law, I can't write contracts, and I can't, I'm not an accountant. So that bit, they give up quite easily. But it's the other stuff. How do you deal with people at scale? So I'm a people person, maybe, if I'm an entrepreneur, but how that's not the same as being able to um, inspire, lead, and performance manage, boringly, uh, people um, who you might see as your family. And so sometimes those are the areas and the challenges that people have because they feel very passionately that they're a people person, but potentially it's not necessarily their top skill to be able to manage those people. Um, so how much of a technical skill set do you think one does really need to become a successful entrepreneur? It depends on what you're doing, I suppose. If you are trying to sell a very uh, complicated machine learning or artificial intelligence solution, my suspicion is you have to be very technical because you have to be able to know when your technical team is doing something that is not going to achieve the dream. For something less highfalutin, you need to know enough so that you can understand when people are telling you things that probably aren't true. And so engineers will sometimes say, we must do it this way. And you've got to be able to, uh, to, be able to unpick 
what is genuinely can we do to get the next iteration of the product over the line or what can we do to stop people over egging the code that's in front of them and while you're a fairly small startup you need to be able to have the the vocabulary to be able to have those conversations and to be able to stop people when they need to be stopped and you know to nudge them in the right direction so not 100 percent essential but important up to an extent i think you can be a perfectly reasonable entrepreneur in a te in the tech sector without having a computer science background but i think you've got if you're in a tech startup you've got to care about the way that the tech is being delivered sure that that makes sense um now more personal question do you have any advice for your younger self professional or otherwise career wise well i think that it is potentially true that engineers are always looking for problems so i've sort of thought about this as i've been managing lots and lots of engineers so when you're looking for problems you never or often will forget all of the things that you've solved because you've solved them they're not a problem anymore you don't care about them so you kind of forget that you've done and achieved these amazing things. So, and then you're only looking at the problem in front of you, which you think at the, at the time that you first see this problem is insurmountable and it's all terrible and it will never happen. And then you're trying to make the code work and it doesn't work and it's all very stressful. And I think engineers can stop themselves in that moment too often to the point where they don't celebrate and build their confidence in the things that they've done. And if, if you could remember all the amazing things that you've done and achieved and worked for in that moment of panic and desperation, because that's what it looks like sometimes, that's what it feels like sometimes, uh, I think that we'd all probably be better engineers. And so I think it's advice for me, but I think it's also advice for other engineers, because based on my experience, that's a lot of the time what I'm talking about when I'm doing one-to-ones with my team. So celebrate your achievements and I guess leave your problems that are already solved, leave them, leave them behind and don't carry them with you as, uh, as uh, well, a package uh, Well, the, the skill that you bring is problem solving. So be confident in that. And I think that's, that's what I try to instill in my team. Well, understanding and leading them are two separate things. So understanding, the only way that you can really do that is by talking to people. So I hope that I look and feel approachable to people so that I can have conversations with engineers, even people who don't report to me on my team. That's the way that I find out what problems could we solve more effectively because it's the engineers who are at the coalface, for want of a better term, who can really tell you how to change things and they can really tell you how they can help you to change things. So having conversations with people and taking actions when you need to, I think is the most important thing in understanding and building an understanding and being open about yourself because I can't understand you unless you understand me so it's a conversation I hope an open one and then in terms of leading people I think that I have to have a clear vision of where I want the team to go and then I have to be really um, relaxed about the fact that if I try to do all the work I would do it in one way which would of course be perfect but I can't do all the work, so I have to be comfortable with the fact that you will definitely have a different style of delivery to me. So I have to be really clear about this is my vision, this is my expectations of how I want you to achieve that or how I want you to behave together in order to achieve that. But then I let you go and you can do it and then I, 
you can come and tell me if you've got some problems achieving it. And then the other aspect is to celebrate, to help people to celebrate when they have achieved elements of the vision. Well, I think the thing, the thing that, that I am passionate about, and I don't like the word passionate, is inclusivity and diversity in the workplace. So when I started working for BT in my first project, I walk, walked into my first project on the graduate training scheme and the doors opened to a massive room that was all open plan, 150 engineers, no other women. Um, not much other visible diver diversity either. And who knows about the things that are, un that are invisible because it, in those days people didn't talk about who they were at work really. So for me, the problems that I would like to solve are around that. So how can we encourage rooms like this to be really representative of the, of the customer group that we're serving, which means that there ought to be more women um, and it definitely means that there ought to be more people of colour, people of, who are disabled, people who um, are on the LGBTQ spectrum. All of those people should feel comfortable to be able to come into work in tech. And the reason why that's true is because all those people buy things from us. It's super outrageous to me that we don't see enough of that diversity in our teams. Which is one of the reasons why I like working at Expedia because we have an actual um, OKR. Does everybody know what OKR is? No. So OKR is again another Google invented acronym. So objective and key results and, and it's what you motivate your teams on in order to achieve over the next quarters. We have a OKR around, at the moment, gender diversity um, and it will change to be other elements of diversity. And for me, that's, that's really important. And that, if you were going to ask me what's the biggest problem that tech has, that is the biggest problem. So I think that, for me, the, the answer sort of came slowly. There wasn't like a moment where I went, oh. <laughs> um, but the personal experience of being in the operations team dealing with issues when I happened to be on a trading, um, a, tr a trading floor. So when issues were happening, I could see that they were taking much longer to fix because we had to say, right, well, God, where's the development team? Are they up? And if they're not up, what do we do? Um, what are the engineers going to be doing while they're on the floor? It all just seemed to me to be a bit too manual and a bit reliant on heroes who knew the code, who could go in and go, right, oh, I'm going to quickly make this change. And you do that too many times and your code base becomes ludicrously complex to deal with. And then when your hero dies of a heart attack, because they're a hero, you then have a challenge of how, who, is, who is the next hero. So for me, it's always felt a bit, a bit daft to operate like that. Um, and then I read a book in my holidays called the SRE Workbook, which I recommend to everybody. And that is... How do you make your production system the same for developers and operators? And it's easy for Google because they've operated like this, I think. I've never worked at Google, so I'm sort of kind of trying to pass what they say to me. Um, it's easy for them because they've always operated like that. For whatever reason, that's how it, 
seems to have started. And SRE, Site Reliability Engineering, is a way that they operate and they're very motivated or um, by it. Coming into an organisation that's kind of always had a separation of uh, operators and developers, you can use the cost of how, it's, how long is it taking to fix things and what does that mean to your lost revenue. That, and that's a really obvious amount of money usually. And you can use that to really think about, well, if we could reduce that, how much more can we do over here in the developer area to kind of develop new functionality? And how can we build longer term, more powerful relationships with our customers because we're not losing them at random moments? So I think that's, it's, it's a bit of a trite thing probably to say, but it's, it's that pot of potential money that inspires people to operate differently. Because I think there were moments in my career where I was going, why do I want to know about these 10,000 people in government? Like, that was not my purpose, especially when John Manzoni was throwing big books at me. Um, the purpose that I have found is that I think that I can help give that view of the production system and help engineers to understand how to operate in that system. So you've got operators who are afraid that they're losing their jobs because... What, I'm not going to be doing the incident management, no, but they'll be doing something else. And developers, I'm not interested in what an operations engineer tells me. Getting them to be interested and getting them to listen and finding the ways to motivate people to work in different ways, I think that is my purpose. I like to be able to, in a technical test, uh, see engineers who are, who are confident in their answer so they've delivered something they're confident in but are open to hearing about how they could improve it because when you're doing a coding test you get like three days to do this coding test it's some crazy thing that you've never thought about before so you're going to try your hardest and you're going to put effort into making sure the solution is effective but it's not going to be perfect and by the way nothing in tech is ever perfect so the people that i really love in interviews are the people who are like right this is how I did it and this is why I did it. Let's make it better in the practical bit following the coding test. So people are open to understanding that not life isn't perfect. They haven't done everything perfectly. How can we work together to make it better? Because that's really what engineering is. It's finding a problem and making it better. And it's very unlikely, it certainly never happened to me, that one person solves the problem and that's it. It's, it's about how, do you, how you're open to sharing your ideas with other people and improving exponentially the, the solution to the problem. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.